0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Peter has had a fantastic undergraduate, graduate career. I mean, you can read about it in your notes. Um, He's got an MD, PhD, he's got undergraduate degrees from MIT. He has a passion for spaceflight, flight and, and just basically opening up space for humanity. And I found that really, uh, really exciting and, and just amazing. Uh, I, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in my 20 years of being in Silicon Valley and my 10-plus years of being involved in the, in the venture business. And every year or two, I meet someone who absolutely loves what they're doing, and it was a childhood, dreams, childhood dream of theirs and they're still doing it, and they actually love it. And Peter's one of these people. So it's really my pleasure to introduce Peter. And really what I wanted to do is talk about Peter a little bit with him, about what formed Peter, where, uh, how, he, how he came to these ideas, what basically empowers his passion for this, and then talk about how XPRIZE was formed and where XPRIZE is going. So it's, it's my sincere pleasure to introduce Peter to all of you. Thank you, Ted. You're very gracious with your introductions, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. So, so, you know, what led to the passion, Peter, of Space Like,
1: how, how did you get there? You know, it's, uh, I feel like I'm one of those very lucky people who had a calling in life. And those of you who know what I mean know what I mean. Uh, it was, for me, it was probably around the age of eight or nine that uh, I was born in 61, to put an age on myself. And uh, Apollo had just started, and I was sort of becoming conscious during the period of time when Apollo was happening. Uh, Apollo 11, for those of you who don't remember, landed in 1969. And it wasn't really that. I think it was Apollo 13 and the troubles they were having around Apollo 13 that got me started and thinking. And it was one of those things that hit me. It was like, wow, my mission in life is this. And it was, you know, it is to open up the space frontier. How did you, how did you know that? Just, it's inherently in my heart. It was something I, I knew and, and I, I, when I talk to schools, in a particular a, a setting like this, you know, the, what I say is if you're not sure what you want to do, go back and figure out what you were really passionate about as a kid. Because no matter what you do in your you can make a career out of anything. You can, you can make a career out of anything. So it might as well be something you really, really passionately love. Because if you're going to do anything really big in this world, it's going to be hard. And it's going to fail over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again. And if you don't love it, you're going to give up along the way before it happens. And I can tell you from the course of the dozen companies that I've started, not all of which have succeeded, but the ones that have succeeded and are around today, they failed 100 deaths along the way. And I would have given up if I were not just so passionately in love with the things I do. And so I just, I, I give that to you. I, so as a kid, you know, I grew up in a Greek family like, like George did, and, yeah. and it was like, son, you're going to be a doctor. I said, <laughs> okay, mom, I want to be an astronaut. Well, that's nice, but you're going to be a doctor. So I ended up, you know, going through medical school. I got my diploma and I bolted. You know, I had two companies going my fourth year of medical school in the space business, of course. And, of, of, uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> I was, I was following my heart. But, you know, it was... Um, I, You know, at the end of the day, all these things are hard and you really have to do what you love because that's what you're gonna that's where you're going to have the greatest you're gonna daydream about it, you're gonna have the insightful insights and the brilliance and you'll be most passionate in communicating to people about it, and therefore they'll want to invest in you, you'll be happiest during it. So everything aligns. If you're doing something for somebody else, life's too short, stop. You know, go and do something that you are absolutely excited about. If you don't know what you're absolutely excited about. Take a moment to think about it and go and remember what were you excited about as a kid
0: so i'm sure there are lots of risks along the way. Yeah. did you think about them along the way as risks, or did you think about where you needed to get to and not even think about the risk
1: uh, i actually i can I can tell you that I took a lot of risky maneuvers in my career, uh, you know sort of packing up and going, and it was not it was when you're so in love with the things that you're doing, you don't stop and think about it. And, I, and I, I didn't. I just, you know, when an opportunity came along, I sold my house in a day and moved, you know, across the, uh, across the country to take advantage of that opportunity. It was, it was I wasn't married at the time, but... Um, um, what was the opportunity? Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so in, um, in 1999, you know, sort of the, the peak of Internet funding, uh, I was running the XPRIZE Foundation uh, which I can talk about more later. I was running a company called uh, Zero Gravity Corporation. that has parabolic weightless flights. And I had co-founded a company called Space Adventures that sends people to orbit. We've sent five people to orbit for average 20 to $30 million each. We have our sixth customer going to orbit now, Richard Garriott. And I got a call one day from Bill Gross, who runs Idealab. And if you guys know Idealab, they had started eToys and GoTo and Net Zero and Cars Direct, a number of companies. I said, Peter, I just raised a billion dollars. Um, and uh, I want to do a private moon company. And so, uh... This is for people to have their own private moon? Yeah. (laughs) I want to build a company to privately land a robot on a lunar surface. And I've got $60 million set aside. And, uh, uh, so I literally sold my house today and moved to Pasadena, took XPRIZE and XeroGene and everything with me, and was Mm. starting to build a, you know, I, I have a vision that, that, uh, uh, we're at a very key point in time where the entire space industry can become privatized and the economic engines uh, that uh, drive space can move from a government-funded scenario to a privately-funded scenario. Uh, and I've been trying to work on pulling together my you know, mini version of my own private space program yeah. in different parts and pieces.
0: So so where did the early ideas for Zero-G and XPRIZE, the
1: foundation, get started? Um, How did you come up with that? So the year is 1992. Uh, it's called the, you know, it's the 500th anniversary of Columbus, and it was also called the International Space Year, sort of a tribute to uh, to uh, uh, the Columbus heritage. And people said in 1992 we were supposed to recommit to go to Mars, uh, to the Moon and Mars, and also complete the International Space Station. And in that year, what hit me was that none of the stuff had happened. The government was a lame duck that none of it had actually materialized. And I stopped and I asked myself, could the government actually open up the space frontier? And in my mind, it became clear that they could not, that the government was no longer able to take the levels of risk, nor could private companies, large private companies, take the level of risk required to open up this frontier. Because literally, if there was, like, a Challenger, Columbia, you know, NASA shuts down for two years, as congressional investigations, and my God, how could you possibly lose six lives? Well, we lose 50,000 on the roads every year. We don't stop, you know, stop the highway system. And large corporations, you know, their stock price will plummet. So I said, you know, the types of real breakthroughs required to open up the greatest frontier ever, at least physical frontier, can't be done any longer in the governments or large corporations. So it hit me that at that point, um, I needed to focus on private companies and, and so I looked at how did we really take other industries forward and it was on mass markets, uh, airline, internet, PCs, all these things that were hugely expensive only for the wealthy people became accessible to everybody as the mass market materialized. So for me it was what are the mass markets involved in space and uh, it was uh, tourism is one large mass market. And so some of the companies, uh, Zero Gravity Corporation, Space Adventures, uh, and part of XPRIZE was in tourism. Entertainment, um, you know, Star Wars is a multi-billion dollar uh, portfolio. And so Rocket Racing League came out of that. And eventually, my long-term mission is I want to be an asteroid miner. Um, If you think about it, uh, the average nickel iron asteroid, half kilometer in size, is worth about $30 trillion dollars in platinum markets. Which is bigger
0: than the credit crisis.
1: Yeah, true. Now, my financing plan for this is I'm going to buy puts on the platinum market, announce my mission to go retrieve the asteroid, cash in on the puts, and then go finance the mission and go. Got it. So so that... Don't... Well, in in the humor, there's some truth,
0: right? There is there is. is I remember you telling me about the early days of XPRIZE and how you would finance it. Like, that's a great story. Uh,
1: So so originally, when the... um, You know, people don't believe... Uh, the X Prize came to me as I was reading a book called The Spirit of St. Louis. Lindbergh wrote this book in 1957 that, 1955 that talked about his flight across the Atlantic. And I had no idea that Lindbergh actually crossed the Atlantic to win a prize. I thought he woke up one day and he just decided, you know, go east, young man. But, uh, <laughs> but there was a $25,000 prize put up by this Frenchman, Raymond Orteg, who wanted to inspire travel between his homeland of Paris and his newfound home of New York. And as I'm reading the book, I'm taking notes in the margins, and I'm going, oh my god. There's, I'm adding it up, $400,000 spent to win this $25,000 prize. I said, how insanely leveraged is that? 16 times the prize money. And this guy didn't spend a penny to back any of the guys most likely to win. Admiral Byrd, who was first person to fly to the North Pole, the most likely player to win, had packed large plates of China in the back of his airplane to celebrate when he landed in Paris. Now, like, they wouldn't have China (laughs) plates in Paris, you know. um, But he crashes on takeoff, and he spent $100,000 to try and win this prize. Uh, And Lindbergh, the most unlikely guy, in fact, the day before he took off from New York, the New York Times on May 19, 1927, wrote this editorial that said, Stop! Don't do this thing. You're going to crash and set back aviation a decade. Well, of course, just the opposite happened. Lindbergh makes the trip. He's called the Flying Fool. He goes from being the Flying Fool to a global hero whose name most school kids still know today. And uh, in 33 and a half hours later, he lands in Paris. Within 18 months of his trip, the number of um, passengers in the United States uh, went from uh, increased 30 fold. The number of airplanes quadrupled, the number of pilots tripled this huge aviation, because it was a paradigm change. Oh, if he can do it, I can do it. And so that formative moment, I said, that's what we need. Because I had, at this point, again, given up on, um, <coughs> on going the government route. I said, I need something to spark these private companies. And so the X Prize, originally, the letter X was going was to be the name of the person who put up the money. It just took me so long to find that person the X stuck around. Yep. Um, <laughs> So I couldn't uh, to to get to your story uh, on leverage. Um, I I I went and I pitched you know for, uh, from Fred Smith, Richard Branson, to, you know, hundreds of CEOs and CMOS on this vision of this highly leveraged incentive prize, and everybody was like, "This is a crazy idea. It'll never work. Someone's going to die. Why isn't NASA doing this?" And everyone said, "No, no, 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 no." Okay.
0: How many people? <laughs> did you uh, hundreds
1: there? of people. Literally, I, I, it was. Because at this point, we announced it under the arch in St. Louis. I had... What year is that? This is uh, May 18th of 1996. I had uh, I had this this concept called this line of super credibility. There's this line of credibility. If you announce something above the line of credibility, it might happen or people might believe it or not, depending on what you do. There's a line of super credibility. If you announce something above the line of super credibility, no matter what you do, it's people believe it and their belief makes it happen in some Ooh. sense. So I had... Not one astronaut. I had 20 astronauts on stage. I had the head of NASA, the head of the FAA, Lindbergh family, Burt Rutan, and I'm announcing this $10 million prize. No one asked, do you have the money? We did not. (laughs) 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 Unfortunately. Do you have any teams competing? We did not. Um, And so we started having teams register, and I'm feeling more and more on the hook to raise this $10 million prize, because it's like, Peter... We're going to be getting there. Do you have the money yet? Well, I will. I promise you, I will. So, you know, um, insane pressure is the uh, mother of uh, invention, uh, not insanity. Well, this was insane pressure. And I, uh, uh, I ended up being able to raise a small amount of capital from donors in St. Louis. And a friend of mine said, Have you heard about a whole-one insurance policy? So, what is that? And I said, Well, you take a bet and you pay a premium, and if if someone accomplishes a the task, they pay, off, they pay off the prize. If they don't, they keep the premium. They, so, we, they, they meaning the, the insurance, insurance company. company. So, we put an end date on the X Prize of January 1, 2005.
0: So, so, you take a bet with an insurance company. So, we, we bet. How, how did you approach them and just, hey, I'm going to.
1: So, I, I went through uh, Aon as a broker who went to the space insurance underwriters who have a certain amount of capacity traditionally insuring launches and satellites. And they play in the very traditional world. And the insurance underwriters went and said to Boeing, are you going to compete? No. Lockheed, no. Northrop Grumman, no. No one's going to win this thing. It's ridiculous. So they took the bet. And um, it's not publicly disclosed how much it is, but, you know, it was in the single-digit low millions. But I didn't have, you know, $3 million to pay the insurance premium. Um, But I thought I could raise it. So I I wrote a policy where I would pay $50,000 every month with a large balloon payment at the end. So I would, I would be paying in $50,000, you know, the last Friday of every month and I'd have this $50,000 Friday coming. And how did you finance that? Begging. <laughs> Well-worn knee pad. I became very impassioned in fundraising, our friend Adeo and many of our, our common friends from Elon, and basically going out to folks and saying, here's the vision, you know, and I would literally finance this thing 50000 at a time. Uh, because if I didn't pay the fifty thousand dollars, all the money I'd paid in beforehand would have been evaporated, and the thing would be over. They'd keep it. So um, I read about one day I had this large, you know, balloon payment coming along. I read about this woman Anoushene Sari, born in Persia, came here in high school, became a serial entrepreneur. Her and her husband started a company called Telecom Technologies. They sold to Sonus Networks for a billion dollars, and in her bio it says and her dream is to fly on a suborbital flight into space and I I, I read that thing like four or five times (laughs) on a (laughs) suborbital flight into space and I I I committed in that moment in time to track her down and I did and I was her first meeting when she came back vacationing from Hawaii after selling her company and uh, we named it the Ansari X Prize because they put up the money to pay off the rest and it was so successful um we've uh, taken the X now and turned it into a incentive prize organization and we're launching a series of X prizes in different areas.
0: Got it. So before we go there, so me so you're running all this stuff with X Prize. What was your life like? Outside you know
1: <laughs> what life? <laughs> yeah. um, did, did you I sleep? Get, uh well I mean the, it wasn't just X prize, we had Zero G going as well. Now I want you to imagine um I had started Zero-G zero G is a parabolic flight company. I wanted, to, I wanted to make it possible for all of you. Anybody here flown in Zero-G? You raise your hand if you have. Oh, lots of great customers. There we go. One, we have uh, two. Uh, so we have a flight out of Moffett Field on May 25th. If anybody wants to fly, please come in, in, and join us. Um, and so I wanted to, the next best thing, if you couldn't fly into orbit, was to go and fly on NASA's Zero-G airplanes, how they train their astronauts. So Byron Lichtenberg and I, on May of '93, walked into the FAA and said, "We want to go and commercialize parabolic flight." And they say, "Well, what's that?" Well, we take an airplane, we put you know 30 people in the back, um, we uh, we we take the airplane up into a 50-degree angle of attack, we take them out of their seatbelts, and we push over the top, and they float around. They said, "You want to do what?" <laughs> go talk to our lawyers now. Um, The lawyers proceeded to explain to me that nowhere in the Federal Aviation Regulations is this allowed. And I said, well, they weren't thinking about it 50 years ago when they wrote the Federal Aviation Regulations, so what does that have to do with the fact that it's not allowed? And as a final result, it took me 11 years and four months to become operational. This was an 11-and-a-half-year startup. While doing XPRIZE. While doing XPRIZE and launching Space Adventures. And uh, we... Now, interesting was we launched... Zero G in May of 93, and XPRIZE was conceived of in 94 and launched in 96. Uh, Zero G got, had its first operational flight in September, third week of September 2004, and the XPRIZE winning flights occurred a week later. So both of these independent things collided in my life at the exact same moment in time, which was insane. About it. And you had Space Adventures. Yeah. So how did the idea for Space Adventures start? So uh, <laughs> a friend of mine, Mike as McDowell... As well as the ISU. Yeah. Uh, Mike McDowell and Eric Anderson, uh, who mm-hmm. co-founded this with me, um, the, the Russians had become a capitalist society, and the great Soviet assets were now being made available, including you could go and you could rent a MiG jet. You could go fly a MiG-29 you know, or a MiG-25. and, and Literally, I, I would go to Zakovsky Air Force Base, and you'd be sitting there walking around and hopping into a MiG, and 10 years later, earlier, you would have been shot dead as being a spy on this super-secret Air Force Base with and incredible—and then you could rent there. you could actually go and fly on the Russian zero-G airplane, but couldn't do it on, on, on the U.S., so yeah. capitalist Russia was making all these things available. And uh, we started a company to do that. Uh, another good friend, Richard Garriott, who—any of you heard of Ultima? Uh, Ultima Online, the video game. So as a perfect example of someone following their passion, uh, Richard's dad was a Skylab astronaut and a shuttle astronaut. And Richard, in high school, became a video game designer and literally didn't graduate, didn't go to college, but became, you know, hugely successful and uh, has made a large amount of money that allows him to to buy a private flight to orbit for $30 million. And so he is now training in training uh, in Russia, in Star City, as our sixth private customer. Uh, who, who are the people that went up before? Uh, Dennis Tito uh, went up, uh, owned, runs Woolshire Associates. Uh, we had uh, Mark Shuttleworth, for South African. Uh, we had Greg Olson uh, from the U.S., uh, Anusha Ansari, who funded the Ansari X-Prize, was our fourth. And uh, Charles Simone, who wrote Word and Excel, was our, our fifth. So. Um, you know, our goal is to go from one to two to four, and we basically, we market the Russian Soyuz uh, vehicle, which is the, you know, still the safest vehicle on the planet. So so you're doing basically Space Adventures,
0: Zero-G, X-Rise at the same time, and and you realize you don't have enough to do. <laughs> so you actually have the ISU going as
1: well. Um, well, I <laughs> so International Space University was started... Uh, by myself and some colleagues early on before this, and it's just, it's been successful and continued. And it's, uh, we wanted to start a university, a graduate-style university for the study space. Recognition is that opening a frontier, any frontier, is multidisciplinary. It's not just engineers or scientists or financiers, it's everything and all countries involved. So we we had met and uh, become friends with Arthur C. Clarke, and we had talked about this idea of a, a university that would bring the best and brightest minds together for the study of space. And uh, I was a grad student at MIT, and, and um, uh, I borrowed MIT's campus. And, <laughs> and we created, we had a founding conference for this International Space University, which was a little bit audacious to have a founding conference for university at MIT and as, as graduate students there. And we convinced NASA to kick in some money and a few other people to get some crazy stories. Um, and we ended up uh, uh, starting a university. And the every, we have two programs, a summer program that travels every year to a different place. And the 2009 program will actually be up here, uh, hosted by Ames. The 2008 program is in Spain. 2007 was in China.
0: Yeah, it was a
1: lot of fun. Pretty, pretty amazing. So are, are you doing anything else with your life? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we just started a new sport called the Rocket Racing League. So. Um, just very briefly, we want to create a, uh, I went to an Indy 500 race a few years back and was bored, bored out of my mind by the car going... Meow, meow. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. And so over uh, beers with a friend, we decided to try and create a new sport that would be rocket-powered airplanes in a three-dimensional closed course. And we're launching it uh, this August at Oshkosh, and we have a brand new generation of rocket-powered vehicles called X-Racers. Think about pod racing. And and you get it. We have uh, virtual raceway in the sky technology, where you see the raceway on the jumbotron, the video screen at home, um, or or in your heads up display if you're a racer. And when is that going to be? When is it? Uh, the first one. The first one is uh, uh, last week of July this summer. So it's it's you know NASCAR is and Formula racing are multi billion dollar industries, mm-hmm. and so you know how you have to guess how many. How many uh, launches launch people into space every year? <coughs> Guess. How many? Ten. It's it's, it's about, about four to six launches of humans. How many total commercial launches are there per year to space? A
0: hundred a, hundred a thousand.
1: thousand. It's about twelve to fourteen in a good year for commercial launches into space. How many commercial? How many commercial companies are there launching satellites into space? About, about 12 to 16 commercial. So imagine one customer per year for these companies. I mean, it's not a good business. So it hit, you know, um, so one of the things that hit me was that there's a much better um, marketplace. I call them self-loading carbon payloads, you know, humans. They're, they're, you know, they're easy to make. They're, they come with their own money. There's lots of them out there. So that's the, you guys are slow. Uh, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's a, the tourism industry, and so the Rocket Racing League is about having thousands of rocket firings and, and flowing technology from the rocket racers, uh, just the way the same way formula and in, in IndyCar technology is flowing the cars that we drive with paddle shifting, ABS brakes. I hope that the rocket racing yeah. will drive new technologies.
0: So you think are you gonna, are people are going to be watching for the excitement or for the accidents? <laughs>
1: Yeah, they say that people go to cockroach races to watch the cockroach crashes. Anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, um, it's going to be, the, I mean, imagine a uh, uh, you know, half dozen of these vehicles spewing 12-foot flames, you know, racing against each other. It's going to be incredible. And it is. I, I've seen, we just did the series of test flights in the vehicle at the Mojave Desert recently, and it's amazing.
0: And do you have people to pilot? Yeah, we have, oh, kidding me? Mean, it's huge, huge interest levels. And, and how do you filter who's going to be a pilot versus... A-
1: well, they have to buy a team. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, they will go through training. But it's, it's, there's a whole video component, video game component, where kids can... Each of these vehicles have a differential GPS, and they'll transmit it. And you can race against these vehicles in real time at home. So it's going to be... And that's this summer? That's this summer. The first, we do the first public flights of these vehicles.
0: Yeah. And the first race will be...
1: We'll do a series of exhibition flights at the end of this year and then we'll do the first races in 09.
0: And televised.
1: We have uh, a whole television side of the equation, yeah. Mm. So so
0: you know, just on the on the critical side, right? These are very, very audacious programs. All of them. It's do, insane. Do 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 people ever question you about the, the potential risk to the people involved, people on the ground.
1: Yes. Yeah, and and I had I was um I was in a congressional hearing. Um, and uh, one of the Congress, Congresswomen stood up and said, Dr. Diamandis, um, aren't you, in fact, going to cause people to kill themselves as they go after this X Prize? And I was really taken aback by, by the question. And I, I thought for a moment. And I answered her in the following way. I said, um, 500 years ago, thousands of people gave their lives as they crossed the Atlantic to open up this great nation. You know, 200 years ago, thousands gave their lives again as they crossed the Great Plains to open up the West. And you're telling me, on the verge of the greatest human exploration ever, people shouldn't risk their lives? That's un-American. And she didn't follow up with any further questions.
0: But it's true!
1: You know, if you stop and you think about it, the greatest, you know, to, to have... True breakthroughs require taking risk. You know, I think we're killing ourselves in this country by our inability to take risk. You know, the day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. If it's not a crazy idea, then it's a small incremental improvement. It's not a true breakthrough. So how do- where do we incentivize really risky stuff? It used to be in the government programs. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, Saying in 1961 that we're going to the moon after we had not even sent anybody to orbit yet, we had just put Alan Shepard up on a suborbital flight. The medical journals, if you go back and you read the late 50s and the early 60s, well, late 50s, didn't know how the human body physiology would react to space. Would the brain work in the you know, Van Allen belts, because it's basically an electromagnetic machine? Um, could you even swallow in zero gravity? Now... You know, the fact of the matter, anybody who's ever watched someone drink a beer while standing on their head would be able to know that you can <laughs> swallow in zero G. But, um,
0: <laughs>
1: but they ask these questions. And, and so this, the audaciousness of, of this, and I, I want to share a metric with all of you to really empower you in something. The average age of the engineers in 1961 who designed the Apollo program, Invented the propulsion, the navigation and guidance, the structures, the rendezvous and docking system. The average age was 26. The average age of the engineers who designed the Apollo program was 26 years old because there was no one there to tell them what couldn't be done. It was literally at the peak of their creativity. These people were given a clean sheet and said, go and make this happen. You have a presidential mandate, and they did. The same average age as you know, who created the dot-com revolution. So to the faculty in the room, next time someone in their mid-twenties comes to you with a crazy idea, listen. To the students in the room, if you have a crazy idea and someone tells you it's a crazy idea, well, maybe it is for them. Go and do it. So literally, there's a way of thinking that we have to take risk.
0: Got it. So, so XPRIZE, where is it going now? How are you basically incorporating risk-taking into XPRIZE? I mean, the mission of XPRIZE has expanded quite a bit. So what is XPRIZE now? Where is it
1: going? We, um, we set a mission. When the XPRIZE was originally won, uh, we ended with zero dollars in the bank. And um, we asked the question, do we wrap up and say, ta-da, <laughs> success. <laughs> <laughs> Very tempting, but not. Um, so we ended up uh, thinking about do we become a technology play of uh, incentivizing space exploration, we do um, general technology, and we set a mission after a lot of deliberation to use these incentive prizes to incentivize breakthroughs in a range of areas. So our mission is to bring about radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. The goal is to incentivize maverick thinkers, to set audacious but achievable goals. Um, So that's really where we try and focus our, our points. What does the public think is literally impossible until it's done? and that's where we try and put a large cash prize to change behavior.
0: So, that, so, so is one of the X-Prizes going to be how to create
1: a new U.S. government? <laughs> that is no. <laughs> uh, we are... We have uh, five verticals. We have exploration. So we've launched since then the Google Lunar X-Prize. Uh, Google's put up $30 million in prize money for the first private team to land a robot on the surface of the moon row 500 meters, send back a series of photos and videos. Now, originally NASA was going to fund this prize. Remember, remember I said earlier I went, uh, there was this company called Blastoff that I moved across the country to go and do with Idealab? Well, it was basically to do this private moon mission, and then we had the dot-com meltdown and the money vaporized, so that never happened. So this is the way of fulfilling that original vision of a private moon mission. So we've offered it through a prize mechanism now. So NASA was going to do this, but they couldn't find $20 million in their budget. They were going to make it U.S. only, so Google stepped up with 30 million and made it a global competition. and NASA was was sure that no one would register to compete, or we'd have a small handful. We've had over 700 registrations from 50 countries around the world, 700 registration requests, so a huge amount of interest. Uh, We're working on a series of deep ocean X-Prizes to map the other 97% of the ocean floor. Um, In life sciences, we've launched the Archon X-Prize for genomics, sequence 100 human genomes in 10 days. Um, we have, we're working with, um, uh, with uh, Lance Armstrong on a cancer XPRIZE. Uh, we are working on a human longevity XPRIZE, you know, double or triple the healthy human lifespan. Uh, energy and the environment, we've launched the automotive, the progressive automotive XPRIZE for a new generation of cars that exceed 100 miles per gallon equivalent, manufacturable, desirable, low-carbon emissions. And uh, working in education and global development, so we're, we're experimenting where these prizes will work. Got it. And, and how are you financing them and, and staffing the prizes and where so, do you need help? Um, so we're financing them through corporate sponsorships and private philanthropic donations. You know, for me, I'm out to, to pitch this as a new form of philanthropy. You know, people work huge, you know, tents to make their money in life and they demand tenfold, a hundredfold leverage on their dollar while they're making their money. And then when they go and give it away, they're happy on 25 cents in the dollar. And, you know, prizes are a very efficient way to get 10 or 50 times your money and you only pay the winner. You know, I don't care where someone's gone to school, what they've ever done, you know, if they win this thing, they get the money. Not for trying, not for a good idea. So we are, um, you know, I have my email up here. We're always, we we do have summer interns, um, and we staff it, uh, really, each of the prizes is staffed with someone who's as passionate in that area as I was about space.
0: Okay, so you're not up to a lot of stuff. (laughs) Um, So where do you go after you do all these prizes? I mean, does this become a perpetual machine of creativity for people to get involved with and for society to get involved with? Sorry. It's, it's all basically an alternate channel to finance. It, it um, is an alternate creativity. channel to
1: finance and and, uh, and drive breakthroughs. I'm giving a, a, a presentation in September up here for the Long Now Foundation, and I'm thinking about the concept of um, mega X-Prizes. So I want you to imagine it's the year 1870 and someone were to say uh, you know, that we're putting up a prize for heavier-than-air travel or instantaneous communication across the Atlantic or unleashing the power of the, of the nucleus. I mean, these things would, would have been inconceivable in the late 1800s, but yet many of them were right around the corner with Marconi and the Wright brothers. So what do we think is totally impossible today that is literally only 20 or 30 years from now? And what can we incentivize with that? So we're, we're thinking about about those areas and our goal is to launch two or three of these X prizes per year. Got it. Amazing. Amazing.
0: So at, at this point I really want to open up the conversation to everyone in the audience and encourage you to ask questions to Peter. So anyone have any questions?
1: Come on. Thank you. Yes.
0: Can
1: expand on this, uh, exploration in I think sure. that's an area that that uh, it has, you know, not even been touched. So incredibly, um, uh, working with some folks, uh, Al Seckle and Dave Gallo, um, and we've got a great advisory board from Jim Cameron and Sylvia Earle and lots of the people in the under ocean. 3% of the ocean floor has been mapped. And we've discovered literally the greatest mountain ranges, the biggest waterfalls, underground lakes, we think that biogenesis, you know, the formation of life, if all life was, was erased on Earth, you'd probably have biogenesis in the deep ocean thermal vents. So um, we are, over the next year, going to decide what the deep ocean X-Prizes should be. Should they be for the design of technology, you know, swarm robotics that can go in and cooperatively map the ocean floor? Should it be for new human technology? We're still using the Russian Mir submersibles from 30 years ago to go down deep. Uh, should it be for ocean health? We're going to find that out. But uh, we want to, the oceanographic in, uh, community is stuck much the same way the space industry was stuck. <coughs> so, Peter, first, thank you. This is very, it's wonderful to actually hear you and see how, um, um, how you persevered in actually making, making those space dreams Um So you talked about being passionate about, about space travel, but a lot of what you actually did involved fundraising. So could you talk about just kind of what was your, what was it like to basically go into doing fundraising for
0: this and what were some of the lessons you learned in doing it? Sure. So just so everyone could hear, uh, the, the question was about fundraising and the lessons learned from fundraising because it was such an integral part of XPRIZE and everything you did.
1: So it is probably one of the most critical skills that you can learn. I think of fundraising as energy transfer. It's going to someone and convincing them to give you some energy that you can go use to go and accomplish something. And I had a formative moment in my life, my sophomore, my, yeah, my sophomore year at MIT. I had started my first organization ever. It's called SEDS, Students with Exploration and Development of Space, and it's, you know, become a, uh, a global student space organization. And uh, I'd started the first chapter at MIT, and I needed $5,000 to print a newsletter uh, and mail it out. And I went to DARPA, uh, to uh, Draper Labs, and I met with the head of Draper, and I knew they were profitable, they were nonprofit, they had money, and I was pitching on my heart out, you know, would you please, I need just $5,000, and he says, I'm sorry, we're a nonprofit, we can't to give money, you know, you, what you're doing is great, but. So I was walking out the door, and I stopped, and I said, well, could you, could you instead print my newsletter?" She said, sure, we got a whole printing facility here. I said, would you mail them? (laughs) He said, absolutely. We probably got about $25,000 worth of printing and mailing from from Draper over the years, that year and and the following years. And it hit me that there is, whenever you go and you ask something, first of all, you have to ask. I mean, the first rule of sales is you have to ask. You have to be, believe in yourself and what you're doing passionately enough that you're willing to give this person the opportunity to help you, or to be involved. And then you have to ask. And then you have to commit to yourself, I'm not going to walk away from having invested that time without something. It may simply be, why aren't you investing? What advice do you have for me to go in, in, on my next call? You know, Who can you introduce me to that does want to do this? And I think other thing I learned, uh, a, a sage uh, fellow, Al Kurth, taught me is in my early days X-Prize. He said, um, when you ask for money, you'll get advice. And when you ask for advice, you might get money. <laughs> and that stuck with me a long time. So I used to be extraordinarily impatient. You know, Hello, what's your name? Can you give me some money, please? And I, I learned that that's not necessarily the best way. People, um, When people invest in you or in your project, they're investing in you it's a transfer of confidence so you really need to build a relationship with that person in a in a way that they they tu- you touch their heart they understand why you care about this how it relates to them and then they will naturally want to get involved but I can't emphasize enough how important that is in a skill if you want to go and do something you're gonna it's about convincing other people to join you bring their technology bring their money have George invest in your company.
0: Yeah, it's amazingly true, because um, I, I, we see it with entrepreneurs. Some of the best entrepreneurs, they, in the fundraising process, the fundraising is secondary to wanting to get groups of people involved. They don't show up and say, you know, the calculation of how much money you're going to make is 4.7x over, over three years. They, they just don't, they don't do that. And a lot of people ask me and other venture people, you know, how do you decide to fund something? You know, what is the critical amount, what is the critical internal rate of return? I'm like, there, there, <coughs> there is none. And some people say, well, like, how can it, there be none? I was like, well, we like to think, can we return 10 times the invested capital? But the, the reason why I would say 10 times is really because the way we qualified in our, head is, in our heads is, can this generate a sufficient breakout that we're proud of our association, and it could also make money. But 10x is really just... A qualifier, it's not really mathematical in a sense. And that always puzzles people. But it's actually the truth. You've, you've said it the best, that of anyone I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so more questions, please? In, in the back, actually.
1: How do you plan to make sure that a lot of this knowledge and innovation that's generated through the prices is actually going to be shared? So let's say you have a prize for somebody to come up with energy efficient cars. And somebody wins the prize. Maybe the number two and three had great ideas are you going to have a way to share so that other groups, uh, students and universities, can learn from that and evolve those ideas? Well, this is a great, great point. So, so, so Peter, yeah. excuse me, I'm Please. just
0: going to repeat the question for everyone who might not be able to hear you. Uh, the question was, how do you share the information and knowledge that gets created in these prizes with a, with a greater group of people to encourage more creativity across a greater group?
1: So first of all, uh, one rule of thumb is that the team owns intellectual property. We don't lay a claim on that, so it's important that they have it to be able to go and, uh, and, um, and develop it further, take it to market. The prizes cause an instigation. They uh, hopefully change a public paradigm, and then the marketplace will hopefully take it from there once there's a proof of concept. Um, one of the things that we do is uh, we, we our job is to promote the teams to the maximum extent possible, make them into heroes which means we're in constant discussions with television networks about behind the scenes following that. We are we're focused on uh, helping the teams promote themselves to the, to the industry. Um, there will be a huge amount of money invested in these teams. And uh, they will be aggressive. For example, the Ansari X-Prize teams of the 26 teams from seven countries, about eight or nine were real. And those real ones uh, are ongoing industry companies right now. Uh, one of the things that we're looking to do, and uh, this is an area that if there's expertise in the, in the room here, I, I would love to to have you come forward. We're looking to create something called MyX Prize, which will be an online platform where um, groups will be able to get together and, and create a prize concept for the local community. Or if there is a thin community around the world with rare disease, for example, group together and set aside a uh, set of prize rules and literally um, at the lower levels, $1,000 to $1 million, create these prizes and make an efficient marketplace for problems and problem solvers.
0: Next question, please. Right over here, white yes. shirt.
1: Hi. Can you tell a little more about your uh, green car X Prize, the 100 miles per gallon X Prize? How, how was it funded? What's the idea? What's sure. The year so something? we have something called the uh, Progressive Automotive X Prize and Progressive Insurance. Um, Peter Lewis and Glenn Renwick have committed the, uh, the prize money. It's $10 million purse initially. It will hopefully grow from there. Uh, you have to um, build a car that can get 100 mile per gallon or its equivalent. And we have worked with um, the EPA to create an equivalency scale for w- the, the total carbon used to create that energy. So whether it's hydrogen, methane, electric, it's got to be cars that can be used on the roads today we're not interested in theoretical cars. These are cars that can actually go into production. They've got to be manufacturable. They have to, they have to go through a number of gates to demonstrate their manufacturability. And there's a, they have to be affordable, meaning they have to be at a price point where they could sell 10,000 or more per year, and there are well-known metrics there. Uh, they have to get less than, I think it's 200 grams per mile um, of carbon emission. And uh, we have over 70 teams that have signed our letter of intent program. Uh, there are two categories: a three-wheel, two-seat called the alternative class for inner, inner city and the four-seat, four-wheel mainstream class. Hmm. Next question, blue shirt, please. Sure,
0: please. Uh, yeah, can you discuss how a prize process compares to other financial leveraging processes, as far as how it affects the uh, how one can influence the regulatory system? Absolutely, Absolutely. great,
1: great question. So prizes. Have a have a way of driving regula- regulation in their in their in their wake. Uh, so the example was it's uh, it's it's late two thousand and three. Um, I'm pretty sure that someone's going to be making a shot for the Ansari X Prize in two thousand and four, because the prize purse was over in two thousand and five, and I was sort of hoping <laughs> someone was going to make a shot for it. And but the rules and regulations to allow private human spaceflight in the United States don't exist. And this is a problem. Okay, So I went and met with Marion Blakey, then F.A. administrator, amazing woman, also the same woman who allowed Zero-G to become operational after 11 years, um, and uh, I, obviously a risk-taker and, and a very and a very uh, uh, incredibly smart uh, and brilliant orator. And I said, Marion, the X Prize is going to be won outside the United States because the rules and, re- rules and regulations don't exist here. And um, very quickly, that concept sunk in and the rules and regulations were passed in the next few months. I think you can have, with global competitions um, and a rooting uh, reflex from the public, the ability to create a, a forcing function to drive regulations. Uh, sorry, Manu, we'll have to skip you because there will be two from you. Very fascinating.
0: Could you compare uh, your foundation with, say, Carnegie Foundation or Ford Foundation? Sure.
1: So traditional philanthropy says, I like what you're doing. I'm going to invest and give you money to go and, and, and accomplish it. And um, it's very much like traditional venture capital. You don't know everybody in the world working on this area. You're typically betting on a, on a single individual with limited knowledge of the arena. And you're funding them uh, open loop maybe with a limit on how much money you're willing to invest, hoping that they'll accomplish the goal, but without knowledge that you may get there. Uh, And you're, you know, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't work. And it's an important part of the equation. The X Prize says the opposite. It says, I'm putting up the prize money and I'm going to only pay the winner. So it's very efficient. You don't pay anyone who tries. You only pay the person who accomplishes it. Um, and typically you will have not you'll typically have 10fold so the Ansari X prize had a 10-fold increase, 10 million dollars spent on the purse, 100 million dollars spent by the teams. The uh, Ortegue prize was a 16-fold, the Kramer prize about a 40-fold. Historically, you have 10 to 40x amount of money spent by folks like Paul Allen, or if you imagine uh, if Larry Ellison spent money on winning competing for a prize versus. And he does for the America's Cup, which is zero cash, so it's infinite, but for a prize that had a, a social uh, goal or purpose at the end of it. So it's a way of attracting capital to leverage your, your philanthropic dollars. So, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm out there now speaking to the Carnegie's and the Gates Foundations and saying uh, incentive prizes should be a tool in your portfolio mix. And to pick a number, I say 10% of all the money you give away should be in the form of prizes. Gray sweatshirt. Um.
0: Yeah.
1: So I have sort of a, a combined question for both of you. Um, it seems like, to a certain extent, if you can't, if you're not providing the money to to the uh, teams up front, then um, it sort of selects for the demographics of the teams, of whether or not it's more. So I wanted to ask you what the demographics of the teams usually are. If they're more corporate um, based, and also whether or not. Um,
0: I was also going to ask George whether or not he's seen uh, anybody include
1: the X Prize in sort of potential revenue and a evaluation. <laughs> so with you first. Um, I had this incredible experience. I walked in my office. I was uh, uh, in the late 90s. I was officed in St. Louis at the St. Louis Science Center, because they provided us our seed capital. I had this package on my desk, a really thick package from Romania. I'm going, I don't know anybody in Romania. And I open it up. And uh, it was a team registration package from a bunch of graduate students at a university in Romania. And I was like, holy cow, and I'm, I'm pulling out, they send me all these photos and these designs, and they're building these kick-ass rockets in the middle of Romania. And they were funding it as graduate students by uh, jobs and, and, and just whatever they could do. And they formed, they are now, 10 years later, the leading aerospace company in Romania. And they've also just registered to compete for the Google Lunar X Prize as a Romanian team. So uh, I was just amazed at uh, how a prize can be a, a causative agent. So I'll give you an example. Um, before the X Prize was around in the, in the earlier 90s, someone going to George looking for funding for his or her rocket ship said, George, would you invest in my... In my my rocket ship. I'm going to give people rides on suborbital flights to space. And you say, "Well, hold it. The regulations don't exist. Um, there's technology risk. You might kill somebody." Uh, I think I'll invest in T-bills instead. And that was traditionally the the response. No one was investing in this thing. Now we created this prize, and the approach went something like, "Would you back my team from Toronto? I want to beat the team in Montreal." And all of a sudden, the whole sports financing model of you know regional competitions or it's the US versus Russia, or it's this sponsorship that didn't care whether you succeed or not but how much publicity you would get. So we literally were able to tap for the teams part of the $20 billion sponsorship market that wasn't possible before.
0: Yeah, and to answer your question, no, no one's put on in their presentation or summary that that winning the X Prize or an X Prize or any kind of prize could be a source of funding. Um, it actually hasn't popped up, and, and if I have any uh, Issue or concern is a lot of the plans and summaries that people send me are really very um, evolutionary versus revolutionary plans. A lot of th- I think I'd much rather read things that are breakout possibilities um, versus you know yet another internet music site. I'll have site. to talk
1: to you later about this idea. I
0: have. <laughs> 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 so next question. Last question. Last question, right over
1: here. Okay. Hi. Okay. So. One thing i of uh, working in long-term philanthropy is that there's an extremely small number of people who invest in these areas. It's probably one of the most underfunded areas of philanthropy right now. There are not market-enabled mechanisms to support things that have benefits that are diffuse, like, that can accrue across a wide spectrum of men. Uh There's people like Paul Allen, Peter Thiel, many of your donors, who are doing some things, but still very small. What do you think are the core reasons for that, and how do we change that? Where long-term philanthropy becomes uh, much more sporty So, the idea of incentive prizes is, is a old idea. It was uh, the Longitude Prize in the early seventeen hundreds, uh, put up by the British royalty, and then. What was the Longitude Prize? So the Longitude Prize. Uh, it turned out that one in the in the. 1700s you could know your latitude very well but you couldn't know your longitude. And uh, many of the British fleets were crashing on the rocks and thousands of people were losing their lives. And so the the Royal Society of, uh, of England put up a prize uh, 10,000 pounds or thereabouts if everybody remembers the exact number but uh, for the person who could tell uh, longitude. And the, the concept when something was described to be hard it was described to be as hard as determining one's longitude. You know, it was sort of a, a phrase that they had in that in that time. And it was won by John uh, uh, Harris. Harris, yeah, uh, watchmaker, uh, who, and and it was thought to have been. You know, they didn't want to award the prize to watchmaker because it wasn't the technology they expected to win the prize. But uh, to your point, in the early, turn of the century, aviation prizes were uh, were very much the norm, and there were. Hundreds of the aviation prizes. And what changed that was World War II. When all of a sudden it no longer became people needed innovation on date certain. We've got to beat, you know, the Germans in the war. And consequently, you'd throw money at something versus versus do allow Darwinian evolution to evolve something that's better and newer. Um, so what I'm trying to do, and I think you know, we see that now. You saw, uh, maybe you saw that Peter put up a million dollar prize a couple days ago for an artificial chicken meat. Um, so I think we're going to see prizes become more and more into play. I had a chance to speak with um, the founder of, uh, of CRV, um, Rick. Rick, Rick Burns, who has told me that in the early days of creating uh, Charles River Ventures, the, the idea of a venture capital fund was a strange idea and you have to go around person to person and sell it over and over again. And, It finally eventually caught on. So hopefully, um, you know, uh, XPRIZE and incentive prizes will be similar. Arthur C. Clarke said there are three phases of a good idea. The first phase is people say, it's crazy, it'll never work. The next phase is, eh, it might work, it's just not worth doing. And the third phase is when they tell you, you know, I told you it was a great idea all along. So we're, uh, we're entering that third phase now.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Peter.
1: Thank you, George. Thank you.